Feel free to move up to the front, or closer to the front. You don't have to be in the very front row. We will continue looking at the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. And this is our third week in chapter 8, which is of Christ, the mediator. If you'll find your place there, the extra copies of the confession I had are gone, so hopefully you have one. And if you, if, by the way, if you do not own one, let me know, and I will specifically bring one um, and put your name at the top. I encourage you to do that. Notice how my name's written up here. That way, well, mine looks, mine's an older edition, but all yours look alike. So if you put your name on it and it gets lost, somebody will give it back to you. And that way, you don't have to keep getting copies. Well, we've been, we've spent, uh, what is this? This is our 13th week. In the study, we're on chapter 8. We uh, have been working through the confession, beginning with the primacy of the Holy Scriptures, that they are a sufficient, certain, infallible rule of all saving, knowledge, faith, and obedience. Excellent summary statement at the very beginning of paragraph 1. The Baptists added, We looked at God and of the Holy Trinity to know who God is. We've considered God's decree. Um, we have considered creation. Uh, divine providence and how all that works, the fall, and then God's covenant to save a people in light of the fall. And then now here's the means of how that covenant's going to be carried out, and that's through the means of a mediator. And so we've taken some time here on these ten paragraphs. By the way, uh, in case there's someone here that wasn't here the other weeks, a mediator is one who intervenes between the two, who bridges the gap, who um, connects creature to creator. Um, a mediator represents both parties, and so he has to be the God-man. Therefore, he has to be 100% God to represent us to God, and yet 100% man to represent um, God to us. And that was largely part of the first and second uh, paragraphs that we looked at. In fact, we spent the whole lesson just on those two. And then last week we came to paragraph 3, 4, and 5. And um, 4 speaks of um, his active and obedient, active and passive obedience, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his return. And it really parallels the Apostles' Creed. Those of you who are familiar with that, uh, paragraph 4 parallels that some. And then paragraph 5 we talked about is really the success of his work. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, actually fully satisfying the justice of God, procured reconciliation. And we took a large part of our time uh, talking about that, how God's justice can be satisfied. How can it be satisfied in a way that he doesn't compromise his true justice? And um, I'm not going to continue to... I'll review that, but uh, you can get the MP3. I know some of you weren't here for that. Um, we talked about the importance of why the active obedience of Christ is so important. And can anybody remember just one thing? We're going to talk about it again today, but just one reason or two reasons or something. Why is the active obedience of Christ so important? Does everybody understand what the active obedience of Christ is? The passive obedience of Christ is what? Okay, he took the penalty that we deserve. He died on the cross. 
He was obedient, as it says in Philippians 2, to the point of death, right? And obedience, accomplishing the Father's will. So that was his passive obedience. But what's his active obedience? Living a perfect life. And, and living a perfect life in regards to what? How do we know it was perfect? Fully kept the law of God, right? He's sinless. Fully kept the law of God. And so, though we may have our sins paid for, the justice of God will not allow someone into His presence unless we have lived the perfect life. The law of God does not change. That's a standard for all ages. It represents God. And so, there has to be a perfect obedience to the law and then those sins have to be paid for when that obedience is violated. So just having the sins paid for is not enough. The passive and active obedience of Christ is important in regards to the justice of God. And so also another way to think about this is his life is just as important as his death because he is really the what? In Romans 5, he's the second, he's the second Adam. So where Adam failed, Christ succeeds. And his righteousness is applied to us. We are at the men's fellowship time Friday night. We spent some time talking about this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. That's the passive obedience, right? Paying for the sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The act of obedience is therefore imputed to us. Our sin is imputed to him. You know, R.C. Sproul brings out an interesting point. He says, the basis of our redemption always remains good works. Now, before you bristle and think there for a little bit, let's talk about this. The only way anybody is saved is by works. Saying it very clearly, but it is Christ's work, not ours. Um, when we say that we are just, this is Sproul, when we say we are justified by faith, that does not mean that our faith is so righteous that it satisfies the demands of God's law. But when we are justified by means of our faith, we are united to the one who does the good works necessary to God to declare us righteous. So hopefully that made a little bit of sense there. Last time we talked a little bit about the necessity of the atonement, taking that from Waldron's book. He has a page roughly summarizing that. Why was it necessary? Um, it's necessary only to the degree that God covenants to save a people in God's covenant. We saw that. Um, his justice makes it absolutely necessary, and His justice is satisfied through propitiation, which we said means to appease or to expiate, to atone for. And so the summary of all of that is that there was a real substitution that took place. There was a real penalty paid by the Savior who stood in our place. He bore the full penalty of God's wrath um, that should have been that should have been for sinners, He poured it out on His Son. So today we'll be taking up, and I, we're going to be moving rather quick, but paragraphs six through ten, so we can finish this. And let's go ahead and read number six. Hopefully, you have a copy. And I suppose I'll read this one, and then I'll ask others to read the other ones. Number six of chapter eight. Although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ till after his incarnation, 
Yet the virtue and efficacy and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect of all ages successively from the beginning of the world in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world being the same yesterday, today, and forever. So who would like to summarize the first part of that verse, which is a very critical thing to understand? Nobody's brave enough. Okay, all right, wait, we got three, four hands now. <laughs> right, and it's... Sure. Yeah, we're going to get to that, actually, as far as the types go in just a minute, if I can table that. But it's, yeah, the types and shadows, there's many types and shadows that pointed to Christ, but Christ is the fulfillment, and Christ's work is effectual and applies back to all who had believed. Um, Jubal, did you want to add something that we missed? Okay. Right. That's an easy way to, to summarize it, is that they were looking forward, and that's kind of where I'm going to get to. So, that, uh, paragraph 6 really speaks to the benefits of the work of Christ is applied to all ages, believers in all ages, whether it's in the Old Covenant, the New Covenant. It's applied to believers in all ages. Old Testament saints who came before, they believed looking forward in God's covenant promises. You remember um, Abraham, it says that he believed God and it was accredited to him, imputed to him, really, as righteousness. He believed God. He believed that the seed would come in Genesis 15 and verse 6, I believe. But the promise that was given in chapter 12 of Genesis, chapter 15 of Genesis, Abraham believed the covenant promise that indeed one would come and it was credited to him as righteousness. I think this paragraph is also picking up on the paragraph of chapter 7 and verse 3, remember, of God's covenant, where it says, the full discovery, let me just read these first few lines, 7-3 if you have your confession. This covenant is revealed in the gospel, first to Adam and the promise of salvation by the seed of a woman, afterwards by further steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. And it is founded on the eternal covenant transaction between the Father and the Son and the redemption of all of the elect. I think it, it speaks to the idea that that full discovery, the confession's picking up on that. This is the full discovery. His death is virtuous and applies to saints of all ages. Section 6 clearly states that it's his righteousness um, that is applied. It's not efforts. Now, types and shadows of the Old Testament sacrificial system, let me ask you, did those take away sin? When they offered bulls, that, that didn't take away any sin at the altar, did it? No, it didn't take away any sin, but they were pictures of what was sure to happen. Pictures of what was sure to happen. Good way to put it. 
So it's picked so they didn't actually take away sin, but yet did God prescribe it? He prescribed it so that, so that these types and shadows and pictures would be very vivid and plain in their minds. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So there's shedding of blood, but is, there, does, is it the blood of that bull or that goat that takes away the sin? It's pointing, to, just as blood was spilled, it's pointing to the blood of the righteous one that would come. It pointed ahead to the sin bearer. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. So it's pretty clear in chapter 9 of Hebrews. This paragraph also has a preview of justification, I think. Um, paragraph or yeah, Chapter 11, I'll just read the first line so you can see the connection. For those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins, by accounting them acceptable, their persons as righteous. I'm speaking, touching again a little bit on the act of obedience there. So we need to distinguish the vehicle of justification is what? It's our faith, right? We believe that's the vehicle of justification, but the ground is what? It's the work of Christ. It's what he's accomplished. It's his work. That's the ground of our justification. Um, We believe by faith, but the ground is that it's Christ's work. And... I'm just trying to get out of the sun or I'm going to need to get my sunglasses. First <laughs> Peter chapter 1 and verse 10 and 11 says, As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied, the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry. The angels, or the, the prophets rather, prophesied the grace that would come to you, looking forward, right? Um, and made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So again, speaking of that grace that would, that would ultimately come. We see nuances of the uh, incarnation here. Again, um, it says very clearly, Christ till after his incarnation. Paragraph 2 was taken up largely by that. The two dual natures of Christ. Remember it said in the fullness of time Christ came and we said that puts redemption in the realm of time and history. Now at the end of this paragraph he says in the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Where is where did they get that idea from? Book of Revelation, right? Chapter 13 uh, where it says and all who dwell on earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written on the, from the foundation of the world in the book of life, and the Lamb who has been slain. So, that's paragraph 6. Um, it's the, works, the work of Christ is applied to all, all ages, before the incarnation, after the incarnation. In the, in the old, looking forward to the work, right? And we look back to that work and trust in it. Any questions on, on number 6? Jubal. Um, he, the book of Hebrews in totality, I would say, would, would explain that concept in its fullest sense. Um, again and again, the, he, what, what does the writer say there? He's like, you know, you keep wanting to go back to the shadows. The real has come. The substance is here. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 says, 
God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. The very opening greeting, if you will, to the book of Hebrews sets forth something dynamically different um, as, as he talks about the priestly work. And we'll come back to the priestly work. When a, a priest made purification of sins, was there a recliner outside of the, uh, beside the altar by which he might sit down and stretch out and relax? You better believe there wasn't. And when he went into the Holy of Holies, was there a chair in there? No. But there's something radically different about this priest. When he had made purification, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And, and the, the whole book of Hebrews, I'd, I'd say, would be the answer to your question. There probably should be, I don't have Waldron's book with me. I don't know, do you have it, Steve? Does he have other verses there for paragraph 6? Because Sam Waldron in his commentary, he's added a lot of verses than what was originally in the confession. Is that on paragraphs? I don't have that on mine for some reason. That was on ch- ch- paragraph two, but. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, I see. Mm-hmm. Sure. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, Romans 4 would be a good one. I did read the Galatians 4. The fullest of the time came, he sent forth his son. Romans 4 would be a good passage we could really camp on, too. There were the two illustrations. It's Abraham and David to support the point that Paul is making there. So thank you for that, Steve. Okay, let's move on to number 7. And who would like to read that? It's short, nice and loud. Have a volunteer. Okay, please stand. and. <laughs> okay. So this paragraph echoes um, the second paragraph somewhat. It repeats, and there's an affirmation of the dual nature of Christ. And it's really a clarification here. And this is an important paragraph. It's a clarification. It's a heretical teaching to avoid here. And who would like to try to summarize that if they see it? It's talking about... Well, we'll just plow through it. It, it, It's one thing to distinguish between the two natures of Christ, but it's quite another to completely separate the two natures of Christ. Because remember, it's one person, two natures, one God, the Son of God, right? And so when you begin to separate them too much, you've now taken away from the God-man. 
Now you, now you have a man, that, you know, and so forth. And so, in fact, let me just read the last few lines of paragraph two. He says, so that the two whole, perfect, distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, and confusion, in which is very God, a very man, yet one Christ, and the only mediator between God and man. So, the writers of the Confession, the, the Baptists, go to great lengths here to emphasize the two natures yet being, the, the two natures of Christ, yet it's the one person, very God and very man, yet one Christ. So, some verses, what this is speaking of, is some verses speak more to the humanity of Christ. Right? When he's hungry, when he's weary, when he's sleeping. Those things emphasize the humanity of Christ. But then you have other verses that speak more to the divine nature of Christ. He knows what you're thinking, for example, or something like, for he knew knew their intent, the Pharisees. Um, And so you can't separate these. Now turn to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. This is the Great Commission. Some of you probably have it memorized. I want you to see it here. Let me ask the question, during the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, particularly in John, chapters 14, 15, and 16, but really throughout the, uh, the Gospels, there's, Jesus is saying something. He's saying that he is going to what? Leave. I'm going to be turned over to sinful men. The Son of Man will be crucified, and I will not always be with you. Right? He says that again and again and again throughout his ministry. Again, particularly John 13, 14, 15, and 16, we see it very clearly. Well, what does it say here? Matthew 28 and verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, did Jesus contradict himself with all the teaching that he's already taught? No. Well, we know that. Thank you. You will throw right on it. (laughs) He did not contradict himself. So how do we reconcile this? In one sense, he's leaving, right? In one sense, he really is leaving the disciples. He's not physically going to be with the disciples. In one sense, he's certainly leaving. But in another sense, he's certainly going to continue on and be with them, right? So his human nature had to be removed, obviously, with the resurrection and ascension, resurrection of Christ, the ascension to the right hand of God. He was leaving in that sense, but his divine nature is omnipresent. You see that? You see the, the, two, the two natures there. It's still one Christ. So there's a sense you, you can't separate them too much and say, well, wait, he said he's leaving. Therefore, he's not omnipresent because he's gone and he's in heaven. You can't flip it around and say, well, I saw him the other day. He's walking because he said he's going to be with us always. You have to make a distinction between the divine nature and the human nature. Another way that this can be abused, R.C. Sproul brings this out in his um, commentary on the Westminster, is how Roman Catholics deal with what we would call the Lord's Supper. Okay, They would say that somehow his human nature are in those elements. As the priest would pray and hold that up, the bread up, the host up, and make, say the hocus pocus, that somehow that is really the body and blood of Christ, that his humanity is there. Now, that's, take, that's heretical, isn't it? Is his body and blood there? 
No, absolutely not. And so you see the error can, can where, where this error can go. And so the purpose of this paragraph simply is to avoid a radical teaching of trying to separate the two natures and separating them too much. And as I just read from the end of paragraph two, that's where we need to go back to. The whole perfect, distinct natures inseparably joined in one person, very God, very man, one Christ, and one mediator. Now let's move to chapter or paragraph eight here. And this is one of those paragraphs, like one and two, it's just really packed full of theology. So Jason, could you read that for us out loud? Number eight. So, with what Jason just read there and the, the substance of paragraph 8, how would you summarize that? What does that sound like to you as, as he was reading? It's distinctively reformed, isn't it, and, and what it's saying. There is sovereign grace all over it, Calvinism, whatever you want to uh, put on it, and so there's a lot of doctrine here to look at. First of all, the application of his redemption. Who is it applied to? What does it say in the first line? It's all those for whom Christ has ordained eternal redemption. He does certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same to them. Remember, it's a particular people that's in view here. Uh, turn to the Gospel of John. We looked at this last week. We'll look at it again. John 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Um, he says here in 17.9, but I'm going to read 2.2. 17.2. Two. Uh, two, Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, so to all you have given him, he may give eternal life. There's this distinct particular people. We see it in John 6 again. And verse 9, I ask on their behalf, the disciples' behalf, those who have believed have, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but, for, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. There is a particular affection, love, passion, desire to accomplish the Father's will with every single person of whom make up the whom here. And so the confession is merely using the words of Scripture by saying to all those for whom. Whom is a distinct amount of people. It's a distinct group of people. It's not for everyone, right? For everyone, Christ has ordained eternal um, redemption. No, there is a particular people 
in view here. We see God has a plan, a plan of salvation, and it's an effectual plan. And it definitely does come to pass. He actually, truly, in every sense of the word, really atones for the sins of all the elect. Now, how can we be prone as Christians in the 21st century to um, narrow down his priestly work? Let's think about that for a minute. We talked about prophet, priest, and king, of which mediator is all of those, right? Now, his priestly work, think about his priestly work, and there's different aspects to his priestly work. What do we typically think of his priestly work? I heard a lot of stuff, but... Okay, actually, most people think of it that he's the sacrifice. He's the one that's offered himself as a sacrifice. Maybe that's just my thinking. But intercession is something we, we, I don't know, we tend to not think of as much. And the confession brings this out in a wonderful way. um, Making intercession for them, uniting them to himself in spirit. So his priestly intercession... Uh, for the actual application of the atonement is just as important. Um, the prayers of Christ for his people, just turn to Luke real quick. I think we have time. Luke 22. Just one example. And verse... Well... It's hard not to read the whole section, uh, who is greatest and so forth. But verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I have prayed for you. Um, I heard a sermon once of uh, just those two verses um, unpacking prophet, priest, and king just within those verses. Uh, But the idea that I have prayed for you. Now think about it at the Last Supper. Do you remember when he says, one of you will betray me? And Judas says, is it I? Jesus says, it is as you say, right? He dips his bread in there. But then he says, and and at the same time, what what does uh, Peter say? All of you may fall away, or you know, all may fall away, but I'll never fall away. And what happens? He denies the Lord three times that very night. And this wonderful, encouraging, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. This is a huge comfort for us as Christians to know that daily in heaven, our high priest is praying for us. He's praying that we would walk in a way that's honoring to the Lord. He's praying that that full application of the atonement would be applied to us on a daily basis as we struggle with sin, as we confess our sin. And even as part of our confession, we say, apply the the blood of Christ afresh to me to wipe that completely away. He intercedes for us. We already talked about the benefits transferred to us as Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Now this paragraph, um, some of you are familiar with the, uh, the acronym TULIP in regards to Calvinistic teaching. Um, T is what? Total depravity. Total depravity. U? Unconditional election. L? Limited atonement. Um, I? Irresistible grace. P? 
Perseverance of the Saints. Wow, what a well-taught um, group of people. Um, it's really, TULIP is just a concise summary of Reformed theology. Now, it's not as though the Calvinists of the Reformation era got around and said, wow, TULIP's like the coolest flower out there. Let's try to build our theology around that. Um, TULIP was really, <laughs> Rob thought it was a good, you know. It, it, it is a neat looking flower, but um, one time we went to a pastor's conference in um, Grand Rapids and where tulips grow naturally, and it was in spring, and they had planted, I think, 400 tulips all around all the grounds, all different. It was just beautiful, you know. I've seen tulips like that since I was a kid. <laughs> um, anyway, the uh, five points of Arminius came out, right? And so Arminius is saying that all men are not depraved. They're saying that election is conditional. It depends on how I live, and then God foresees and he knows if I'm going to be a good person and believe, and then I'll save you. Uh, they taught universal atonement, that the death of Christ just applied to every single person. Um, the irresistible grace, that we could resist God's grace, that the, the power of the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, is not strong enough to really pull me and draw me. And then P, perseverance, they said that you could lose your salvation. Um, but anyway, you see four of these um, points, four of these five packed into this paragraph. And I'd like to just show those to you if you haven't seen them already. The idea of unconditional election that God shows us from before the foundation of the world. Limited atonement, I don't like as much as definite atonement. I like as better or, or a particular redemption um, because the word limited carries a lot of baggage to it. There's nothing limited about the atonement. Um, it's the application of the atonement. Now, you'll notice that limited atonement and unconditional election occur in the very first line. To all those for whom there's election, Christ has obtained eternal redemption, does certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same. So it's speaking of his redemption, all the benefits of redemption, speaking of a certain people there. The total depravity, if you notice, we're going to read on in just a little right here. Third line, okay, making intercession for them, uniting them to himself by his spirit. Notice, revealing unto them in and by the word the mystery of salvation. There has to be an unveiling. That's what reveal means, to lay, to lay forward. There has to be an unveiling. The scales have to be pulled back for us to really understand. And so, total depravity we see there. And then, look at the next line. Right after the word mystery of salvation, persuading them to believe and obey. There's irresistible grace. It is persuade. It will persuade you to believe. <laughs> um, look at the Apostle Paul, kicking and you know he. It's not as though he was. Um, you know, the light came. He's thrown onto the ground. He believes. It persuaded him to believe. And the word for draw in, in, in John 6.44 is a very strong word. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, the Father draws, the Spirit draws. There's different verses actually in John 6, um, later in John 6. He says, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. It's the, the Spirit who gives life. But no man can come to the Father and your own, you know, just I think I'm going to be saved today and I'm going to come to Christ, to the Father. You can't do it in your own strength. John 6, verse 44 says, unless the Father draws him. 
And the word, the word for draw there is to literally drag. It's the same word that's used when they caught the 150 fish at the end of John when the nets were ripping and they're pulling like this. That's what it takes to bring a sinner to faith in Christ. It's, there needs to, there's the irresistible grace there. So I thought that was interesting there. John 6.44 and John 6.63, I believe, are the two references. Yeah, do you have a, no, 44. Do you have a pen there, Tom? Just write it down. That would be the best way, probably. 644 and 663. Now, in regards to particular redemption, we spent some time talking about this last week. Uh, the point of it, to try to keep things really brief, is that salvation is totally of the Lord. That every single one whom God elects, that Jesus, every single one whom Jesus dies for, will ultimately be saved. And it's part of His design. It's His plan. Salvation is 100% effectual for all of the elect. Um, Sam Waldron brings out this idea in his book that the context of the atonement demands particular redemption because the covenant is in the context of Christ's blood. We even said it in the uh, Lord's table. For this is... My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 26 and verse 28. All men are not in the covenant that we learned about in chapter 7. Of God's covenant, the covenant of grace, the covenant of redemption being made, and that covenant of grace that threads through all of history, all men are not included in that covenant. Otherwise, all men would be saved. R.C. Sproul quoting, I can't remember who it was that first coined this phrase, the Calvinist flower is a tulip, but the flower of the Arminian is a daisy pulling off the leaves. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. The Arminian never knows if he'll be ultimately saved in the end. Depends on which one it falls on at the very end, I guess, because it can flip-flop and flip-flop back and forth. But So when we think about particular redemption, we need to remember, and there's this is... Several sermons we could spend on this. Um, the atonement is sufficient for all. It's certainly sufficient for all. It's not limited in that, oh, his blood just wasn't quite righteous enough to apply to the 20 billion people that would ever be born on the earth. That's heresy. His blood is sufficient to atone for a thousand worlds. But it's limited in its scope and it's applied to the elect. It's only efficient for some, and that is to... Believers, The value of his work is not limited. It's not diminished. Um, the perfection of his work is not limited. Let's turn to John chapter 10. John 10. Wonderful passage, a parable of the good shepherd, beginning in verse 10. And we could read the whole chapter from 10 to the end, but I'll read a few select verses. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, or on behalf of the sheep. Verse 15. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father... I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 26 through 27. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. What? 
There's some people that are not of his sheep, he says. And then he says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. That is, I'm intimately acquainted with them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. So that you see that the idea of perseverance there as well. So there are some that are not of the sheep of God, John 10:26. The particularity of the sheep that they hear the voice, they know him, they follow him, and then no one will snatch them out of his hand. We are secure in him. Even today in our text in the sermon that he is the savior of all men, especially that is or particularly of believers, all sorts of men, but particularly those who believe. Now, very quickly, before I open up for questions, I want you to notice the last line of this paragraph where it says, All of free and absolute grace, without any condition foreseen in them to procure it. That is added by the Baptists. Um, the rest of the paragraph largely matches the, um, the Westminster. And I'll just remind you, the next few paragraphs we're going to look at are not in the Westminster Confession of Faith, but I think they're really important. And even this line right here is very important that's added by the Baptists. So all of this wonderful sovereign grace, the work of salvation, a particularity applied to a certain people, the intercession, the revealing of the word, the drawing, persuading by the Holy Spirit. And then at the end, it says, all of free and absolute grace without any condition foreseen in them to procure it. Now, that's obviously teaching we're saved by grace alone, right? There's nothing in ourselves. And it says, now, what, what about the phrase without any condition foreseen? Why do they include that? That's the, yeah, the, the, the argument is that, well, God elects, but he only elects because he foresees and he knows if you're going to be good or bad and that kind of stuff. No, 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 no. That's, I'm sorry? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> That's why Santa Claus is so um, dangerous. And uh, really, the ideas of Santa Claus. Anyway, let's, uh, any questions then on this? It, this, it, it promotes humility. It's really you know, you read something like this, and this is humbling. I mean, this whole paragraph of chapter 8, it is utterly humbling, and they add that line, free and absolute grace, without any condition foreseen. So, you know, maybe you're the most moral person that you've ever met, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's not about you. It's about the Lord choosing you and saving you and, and applying and making effectual uh, his atonement and redemption to you personally. Any questions before we look at 9 and 10 real briefly? Uh, with um, the scripture about uh, God uh, sending the rain on the just and unjust uh, be the same kind of thing as saying that he's the Savior of the men? That's probably a question we should talk about afterwards because that's not applying to... Oh, well, um, it's... No, it's not in the confession here. So we'll talk, we'll talk about that offline just to keep the class going. And then, Okay, so nine, if you follow along with me. The office of mediator between God and man is proper only to Christ, who is prophet, priest, and king of the church of God and may not be either in whole or any part thereof transferred from him 
to any other. What do you think? Why did they add this to the Westminster Confession of Faith? Wasn't the Westminster Divines? I mean, you know, I, I love the Westminster Divines and I love the documents that they've come up with, but yet the Baptists thought it was important to add this. Why? Well, is there a group of religi- a religious group out there that did you have a hand? Okay, Jason. Okay, that's you're on the right track, I, 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 but it's a little bit more. It's rejecting something else from that same group, the Roman Catholic Church. Note, it's talking who? Okay, the, the priest. Uh, that's true in, in some some regard. That's right. Doesn't the Roman Catholic Church have more than one mediator? Okay. <laughs> yes, you're right. <laughs> Mediatrix. And who is that? Could you show me where that's at in the scriptures? It's not there. Um, I, I don't think it's there. First uh, Timothy two five. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, but God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. That's the only verse they need to put as a reference here. It says it all. You can't explain that away. And so the Baptists add this, I think, to refute that doctrine by which, notice it says, either the whole or the part thereof transferred from him to another. What they would say is that, well, Jesus is a mediator, but Mary's a mediator. He transferred some of his meteorship to Mary somehow. And so a very simple statement to speak against that. Any questions on that? It's pretty straightforward, I think. Right, absolutely. Absolutely. They're just wanting to be try to be clear. Now, this last paragraph, the, actually, actually um, both of these paragraphs were in the first London Baptist Confession. So, 1644, uh, published again in 1646. Um, that's the first London Baptist uh, Confession. And both of these paragraphs were added, or I mean, were from there and, and included in the second London. Uh, this tenth paragraph here is important as well. And... Um, Let's. Who would like to read that for me? Who hasn't read? Steve, do you want to read it? Thank you. It'd be real easy to take, um, I think it was the first week, in regards to paragraph one, where prophet, priest, and king, and then this paragraph, 
prophet, priest, and king as spoken of in his office, prophetic office, priestly office, and so forth, and do a series, um, a couple of messages just on that because there's so much to be said about that. I feel like we've, if anything, we've, we've gone over it too fast. But again, this is meant to be a survey <laughs> of this, an introduction to the confession, and so we don't want to get... Um, so I've mentioned this again and again. I mean, I know of churches that are on lesson 220 of the confession. They're halfway through, and you know, you, there's too many people just coming and going. And so, the, its idea is to be a summary. So, but I do want to touch on this um, briefly. And we did speak about it more of uh, the prophet, priest, and king as we see it in the Old Testament and how it points to Christ, how Christ fulfills that. But notice it says here it talks about his prophetic office his priestly office, and his kingly office. Now, we stand in need of the prophetic office. Why? The confession says it. Ignorance. We are ignorant of the things of God. We're ignorant. We need somebody to preach to us, to tell us, to prophesy to us. And so the role of a, a prophet here to declare to us. Remember in Acts chapter 3 and verse 22, it talks about the right verse, yeah. Oops. Yes, I want to get to that one in just a minute. Uh, the, from Acts 3.22, Uh, Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren to him. You shall give heed in everything he says to you. So all of Christ's ministry was a prophetic ministry um, declaring to us. And then John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Again, declaration, prophetic speaking. And so we are ignorant, so we're in need of his prophetic office. Secondly, in respect to our alienation from God, the imperfection of our best services, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us acceptable to God. Now, we've already talked about the roles of a priest, or at least the primary roles, or what? To offer sacrifices, right? To atone for sins, or to... You know, offer the sacrifice, but then also to pray for the people. Christ has done this. He has done this. And we were alienated uh, to God. And even in the best of our services, the best of our reformations, it says here that we stand in need of his priestly office in order to fully reconcile us to God and make us acceptable. And then uh, lastly, it speaks really of our weakness Um, It says here that our utter inability, notice that, compared to total inability, right? Uh, Utter inability, I'm sorry, total ability, (laughs) going on the opposite of T. The utter inability to return to God for our rescue and security from our spiritual adversaries, we need his kingly office. And his kingly office convinces, subdues, it draws, it upholds, it delivers us, and it preserves us in his heavenly kingdom. So it secures us, it brings us to God, it makes sure that it happens. And so, anyway, basically the paragraph, you could sum it up like this, we are a needy people. (laughs) 
we are in need of uh, Christ's role as prophet, priest, and king. We're ignorant, we're alienated from God, and we have utter weakness, weakness to be able to bring ourselves to God in any way. And so that's why we need Christ, his prophetic office, priestly office, and kingly office. Any questions on those chapters that we've covered before I give a few comments? Thoughts or additions? I know we're, we're going fast. We didn't look at all the verses. There's other verses that could be uh, looked at, certainly. Okay. Well, some of this, I know, is... Um, I mean, some of this can be difficult to understand and trying to fit it all together so that it uh, makes sense. Uh, it's like a tapestry. It's an interwoven document. The doctrines that we see are sometimes picked up on again that, we're, that we saw earlier. Um, and it's, it's woven together. And it takes diligent study, but we need to come with humility as we learn. And we need to see not what it says in the confession, but we want to see where it's backed up by Scripture. Right? So primarily we want to be students of the Word of God. This is a helpful summary of the doctrines that are taught in the Word of God. But our final authority, of course, is the Word of God. And practically, uh, how can we respond today to the good news that Christ is our mediator? That He is our prophet. He is our priest. He intercedes for us um, all the time. And He is our King. He delivers us and rules us and ultimately rescues us. So how can we respond to that? It should be one of utter thankfulness as we enter this week of Thanksgiving uh, that God in His infinite wisdom has had a covenant of grace from before the foundation of the world, has carried out through all the means that we've talked about, all through the Old Testament, all the way to the crowning point of the incarnation and the death of Christ. And then those saving benefits applied to each one of his elect, each one of us who are trusting in him. Hebrews 8 says, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. There's another verse just to kind of add on to that. So for the month of December, um, by way of announcement, um, we're only going to have two Sunday school classes. December 14th is being canceled because the, our landlords will be holding an event, uh, some Christmas party here, and so we're going to try to leave by 1.30. So we'll have one long service that day and then the last Sunday of the month as well. So uh, December 7th and 21st, I believe are the dates, Rob Ty will be teaching uh, from Luke 1, so you can be reading that and, and studying that and come prepared for that. And then, Lord willing, in January, we'll continue with the confession. In the next several chapters, I'm anticipating on taking one class for each chapter. So we're going to pick up the speed a little bit. We want to get to these latter chapters. Uh, so let's close in prayer. Father, thank you that we could gather together and to come around your word and to learn of your word. Lord, give us understanding in these things. Send the Spirit in manifold portions, O God, that we might have a sense of that this is truly what your Word teaches, that we might search your Word, that we may be Bereans uh, searching it, O God, and that we might, as we come to the realization that your Word is true and it never lies, and as we see doctrines that are there that may be an aversion to our flesh, that we would come submissively, to your word and realizing that it is authoritative and we need to change our thinking, not change the scriptures. 
Thank you for this time, Lord. We pray your blessing on the rest of our Lord's Day. For Christ's sake, amen.